told that a man suddenly started feeling very sick and went to the doctor. And the doctor checked him out and said, there's nothing wrong with you. But he insisted that he wasn't feeling well. And so the doctor said, well, why don't you go to see Theo the Clown? I'm just substituting the name there because I can't remember the name. But why don't you go and see Theo the Clown? I'm sure that he will make you feeling better because he has made so many people feel better in the past. And so the man insisted that would, not, that would never work. He was very adamant that would never work. Well, he has helped a lot of people. Why, why do you think it won't work? Because I am Theo the Clown. At this time of year, every year during the fall and the winter, many people, perhaps some even here this morning, experience a condition called seasonal affective disorder or SAD. It is a type of depression that is thought to be linked to less sunlight and shorter days that cause some kind of chemical imbalance in the brain. I'm told that people with SAD show the following symptoms, sadness or depression, loss of interest in activities that they once enjoyed, eating more, especially craving carbohydrates, sleeping too much and yet feeling more fatigued, feeling worthless or guilty, difficulty thinking, concentrating, or making decisions, having suicidal thoughts. It is very easy to become depressed when you're hoping, you're praying, and even you're fasting for things in your nation to change are met with God's silence. Because you see, if God doesn't do it, who will? So this Advent series sermon series is entitled Christmas Lessons from Isaiah. In today's message, we will see how a man, a man of God, attempted to lift the national mood by reminding his people that your Redeemer is coming. Isaiah chapter 59, I think the bulletin says 14 to 20, we're actually going to read from verse 9. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if, as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We mourn mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The first point I want to make this morning is that God's arm is never too short to save. Now, if you read the chapter before this one, you will discover a fascinating interplay between God and his people, the nation of Israel. They, the people of Israel, laid the blame for their misfortunes squarely upon God. Why have we taken all this time fasting and praying for deliverance from our tormentors, but you have taken no notice of us, much less bothered to save us? That was their complaint. But God quickly let them know that the fault was not his, but theirs. And so he says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ears too dull to hear. So it's not, it's not my fault, God says. It's yours. And so in this back and forth between God and his people, they would say to him, God, this is all your fault. And God would respond, no, it's your fault. Because my arm is not too short to save, nor are my ears too dull to hear. When you put that in the positive, God was saying, my arm is long enough and strong enough to save you, and my ear is light enough to hear your cries. Now, if those two things are true, which they are, by the way, they are, then the predicament in which God's people found themselves could never have been God's fault. If God's arm is long enough and strong enough to save and to deliver, and if his ears are not too dull so they can't hear, then it means that it could never have been God's fault. God's arm has never been too weak to deliver anyone from anything, nor have his ears been too dull to hear any cry that comes from any person. Now, if you doubt me, let me share with you that God's word is filled with reference after reference of God using the strength of his arm to deliver people. And so, when his people were reeling under the heavy yoke of the Egyptian oppressors and crying out to God day and night for deliverance, what did God say to them? He said this in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. He says, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's what God said. And then after the strength of God's arm had inflicted one last mighty act of judgment upon Pharaoh and his army, what did, what did we see God's mighty arm doing? It brought deliverance for his people 
while overthrowing Pharaoh and his entire army in the Red Sea. Moses, their leader at the time, would later remind them in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 8, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. If that weren't enough, 18 times throughout the Old Testament, we see reference after reference to the strength of God's outstretched arm delivering his people. Sometimes the phrase outstretched arm is paired with God's mighty hand or his great hand or his mighty power to deliver people from predicament after predicament. Now, in fact, David, the psalmist David, he devoted an entire psalm, Psalm 136, to chronicle the great wonders that God accomplished for his people with his strong and outstretched arm. David says, he made the heavens, he formed the earth, he made the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night, he killed every firstborn in Egypt and delivered Israel from enslavement to them. He led them through the wilderness. He struck down mighty kings that opposed them. He freed them from every enemy that they faced. He fed them with manna from heaven, gave them water from a rock. And then what does David conclude? What is his concluding remark after listing all of these things that God's outstretched arm had done? David says this, give thanks to the God of heaven because his love endures forever. So it's not God's fault. The issue is never that God's arm is too short to save, nor his ears too heavy to hear. It is never God's fault when we find ourselves in any predicament under one oppressor or another. So if it is never God's fault, Whose fault is it then? God says, it is not mine. It is yours. Which brings me to my next point. It is our sins that have come between us and God. The writer goes on, Isaiah says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Now, you would think that after God's strong hand and his outstretched arm have done so many incredible wonders for us, you would think that we would honor him, serve him, love him, follow him with all our hearts and with all our souls. Doesn't that seem just fair and just right? But sadly, that is not usually the case. We often get caught up in a vicious cycle in which God delivers us from some predicament, and then we become excited about, about what God did for us. But as soon as the excitement wears off, we forget God and we turn our backs on him as we did before. And then another predicament hits, and we cry out to God again, and he delivers us from that one, and we become excited and we turn to God again, and then the excitement wears off, and we turn our backs on God again. Now this was the precise case with God's people back then. In Psalm 107, 
In fact, that psalm is a, is a litany of instances when people cried out to God for deliverance and God delivered them from all of their trouble, but then they soon forgot. And so that psalm tells us, I'm just going to paraphrase, I'm not going to read the psalm, but this is the sense of the psalm, that some wandered around in desert wastelands, finding no way to settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away from them, and then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and God delivered them from their distress. Some sat in utter darkness, imprisoned in iron chains because they had rebelled against God and they had despised his commandments, and so he subjected them to harsh labor under which they stumbled, finding no one to help them. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and guess what? God saved them from that distress. Psalm continues to say that some became fools to their rebellious ways and they suffered affliction as a result and they loathed all food and they drew near to the gates of death. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and God saved them again from their distress. And then at the end of this litany, the psalmist says this, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. So it's never God's fault. He's generous. He's gracious. He's good. And yet they accused him. And now we find God breaking his silence and saying to them, it is not that my hands are too short to save you, but it is your sins that have made me hide my face from you so that I will not hear you. And then it became so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. And whenever it becomes so quiet that you can hear a pin drop, that is a time for serious introspection. That's when you realize that God was correct all along. That is when you become aware that God has put up with our many failures, one after the other, but he loves us anyway. That's when you realize that God can see through any facade that we put up. That's when you realize that God is not distant. It's not that God is distant. It is that you have moved. I'm told that there was this older couple who had been married for many years, over 50 years. And they loved traveling through the countryside in their beat-up truck. Now, she would always sit so close to him, right up under the steering wheel, that they were always touching. That's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> However, as time went on, she started moving further and further away because she was drawn in by all the beauty of nature and all of the uh, fantastic views that she could see. So much so that there was a distance between them now. And then she began she began to complain to her husband about this distance that existed between them, to which he responded, Dear, I never moved. I've been here. It's not me who moved. It is you who moved. Now, if there's a distance between us and God, it is not because God has moved. It is because we have. Our actions often create a gulf 
between us and God that needs to be bridged so that the relationship is restored to where it should be, to where it needs to be. Here's our third point. Acknowledging our wrongs is key to our deliverance. Acknowledging our wrong is key to our deliverance. As long as we keep up the cycle of sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, we will continue to grope around in the darkness as we just read, hoping for the light, stumbling even in broad daylight, looking for justice but finding none, watching truth stumble while lies and conspiracy theories walk upright. Now, did anybody read last week about Merriam-Webster's just-released top word for 2023? Anybody read that? Anybody knows what that top word is? It's the word authenticity. Authenticity was Merriam-Webster's top word for 2023. It is a word that was most researched during 2023. And I asked myself, could it be that people's search for that word reflects a universal longing in our hearts to see truth return to the public squares? Will we ever see a wholesome acknowledging before God of the sins that we have committed against him, of the offenses with which we have offended him so that we are indeed becoming authentic before God once again. I've asked that this prayer be left on the screen while I make my way through this point. Because you see, it seems to me that we can't wait for the world to pray this prayer on our own, on their own, I'm sorry because they don't know how. The world can't pray a prayer of repentance. It doesn't know how to do that. It seems to me that the church will have to lead the way with this prayer of acknowledgement and repentance before God. It seems to me that Christians must first acknowledge and take responsibility for our sins and for the sins of our nation. The world can't do that. They don't know how to do that. Now notice the things that are included in the prayer that God's people prayed that we just read. There is an acknowledgement of the sins of our nation against God. They, they, they acknowledge that. There was an acknowledgement that God was aware of the sins of our nation because they were done in his sight. There was an acknowledgement that our nation has been guilty of turning its back on God after all that God has done for us. There was the acknowledgement that we are guilty of rebellion and treachery against God. There was also the acknowledgement that our nation has developed this preference for lies and conspiracy theories over the truth. You know, I sometimes watch the news and it tickles me to death, and maybe it has you as well, that uh, I, 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 I heard this news sometime that some people believe, and, they, and, and this is not makeup stuff now, they believe this thing for real. 
They believe that JFK is coming back in some kind of form to deliver America. No, you laugh, and you should. But people believe that. People believe that. I want to say to us this morning that acknowledging our sins before God is vital to any deliverance that we need from him. And I believe that our church needs to lead the way in this area. It must begin with us because the nation does not know how to do that on its own. Fourthly and finally, a redeemer is coming for those who turn to him. Now, a redeemer is one who steps in to buy back something or someone that has already been sold. Now, if I accidentally sold one of my wife's pairs of shoes, if I accidentally did that and she happened to go and purchase them back, then she would be a redeemer. You see how my mind is working here, right? <laughs> All right. So a redeemer, a redeemer, a redeemer, this is for real now, a redeemer is coming for those who turn to him. And this is what the prophet says. For he, this redeemer, will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. But I want us to notice that before this redeemer came, and this is all exciting, and I'm glad that Rhonda paid in such, such a picture of the suffering that um, God's people um, had to endure before this happened. Before this redeemer came, scripture tells us that God looked around, he looked around, and he was displeased that there was no intercessor. There was nobody to go between him and his people. No one could bridge the gulf that our sins created between us and God. And so God decided that he would become this intercessor himself. He would do it himself. He would bridge this gap himself. And so when Isaiah uses language to say that his, his own arm brought him salvation or that he put on righteousness as a breastplate or that he put on a helmet of salvation on his head, or garments of vengeance for clothing, and that he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, he means that God decided that he was going to do this himself. He was going to become or Redeemer, because quite frankly, there was nobody else who could. And because our Redeemer is coming, God's people can lift up our heads in anticipation rather than hang them in depression. The bottom line of our message is this, because our Redeemer is coming, we live with hope. But does it mean that the world is rosy? Does it mean that there are not things in our lives that make us sad and concerned, make us worry? No. It means that if we keep our eyes on our Redeemer who is coming, we can live with hope. I want to challenge you this morning to do two things, or to challenge you in two ways. 
Firstly, I want to challenge you to make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. How many of you have GPSs? You know that they drive you nuts sometimes because they want to take you in a direction where you don't want to go, and as long as you keep going where you're going, they'll keep telling you, rerouting or make a U-turn drives us nuts. But we can learn a very valuable lesson from them because whenever we miss a turn, they will reroute us by saying rerouting or make a U-turn. Now, if God's GPS tells us that your Redeemer is coming, but you keep going in the direction that you want to go, you will miss him because your choices and actions are separating you and taking you in a completely different direction from God. And here's the thing that some people, you know, who are living, they just want to keep going in doing whatever they're doing, whatever they're doing. They enjoy it so much that they want to keep going. But if you make a U-turn, you will find that God is coming straight toward you to embrace you just as you are and to save you from whatever has you captive, whatever is oppressing you. Whether that is pride, rebellion, lying, darkness, blindness, grief, stumbling, all of which are mentioned in the text that we just read, from addiction, or whatever has you captive. Now that U-turn is what we call repentance. Repentance. So if you're going in one direction and this direction is taking you away from God, however enjoyable it may be on that road, making a U-turn means to turn around and to go in God's direction, to seek him. That is repentance. Now nothing will cause God to break his silence more than the prayer of repentance. As you examine your own hearts this morning, who will pray that prayer of repentance today for yourself, perhaps, for your family, perhaps, for your community, for your country? God, we come to you this morning. We are all guilty before you. None of us. None of us, Lord God, is accepted. God, we have done things that have created a gulf between you and us. Maybe our family, family members, have done things, Lord, that have created a gulf between you and them. God, certainly, our nation has done things and continues to do things that has created a gulf between you and us as a people. God, this morning, we just want to symbolically 
here at Grounds Chapel stand in the gap as intercessors, as maybe other churches are doing even today, to ask, O oh God, that you would have mercy upon us. And God, we find that when we humble ourselves and ask your forgiveness, you are more ready to forgive us than we are to ask for forgiveness. Would you forgive our nation? Would you forgive our churches? Would you forgive us? Thank you that you're merciful and forgiving, not willing that any should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. God, if there's one person here today who does not know Jesus, who has never repented of their sins, or maybe they have, but have turned back from you, God, I pray that today would be the day that they make that U-turn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to challenge you in a second way this morning to anchor your soul to hope. Anchor your soul to hope. And when we look around today, all of us, what we see with our eyes is very depressing, very depressing. We see the same injustice as Isaiah saw. We see truth stumbling in the public square, and we see lies taking its place. We see people turning their backs on God. We see our nation going downstream from God on whom it was founded. We see thousands of churches all across the world disaffiliating with their parent organization because it is acquiescing to the LGBTQ community. We see people believing more in Santa Claus, Mickey Mouse, and the Easter Bunny and a presidential candidate than they do in the real Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that is all very depressing if we keep looking at it. But I want to say to us this morning that we as a church community, we must hold on to our hope that our Redeemer is coming. Our Redeemer is coming. He is going to be very different from whoever emerges president in the next presidential election. Because he, whoever he is, can deliver us, can deliver America. But this Redeemer, he's coming for those whose hearts are turned toward him in hope. I want to challenge us to let this hope in Christ anchor our souls because things will happen. Things will happen from time to time to us. But if we anchor our souls in hope, if we decide beforehand to remain steadfast in hope regardless of what happens, we are going to triumph. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for this hope that we have in Christ. This is a hope that transcends anything and everything that is happening in our world today. And yet sometimes, Lord God, we take our eyes off of you, our Redeemer, and we place it on earthly messiahs and earthly redeemers, thinking, Lord God, that they would be the one 
to bring us the hope we need. And yet, Lord, this hope is found only in you. So, Lord, teach us to anchor our hope in Christ. This is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.